you, Zoe. It's good to, to be reminded where our help comes from. It's so easy to get distracted, and that's one of the things that we're going to be discussing today uh, as we look at at the life of David. We're going to be in uh, we're going to be in First uh, Samuel seventeen, and we're going to be looking again at uh, the story of David and Goliath. I know that I touched on this a couple of weeks ago. Am I entirely too loud? Okay. Um, well, we touched on this a couple of weeks ago, but we're going to revisit it a little bit more in full today um, because um, we're looking at the life of David. What makes David this man after God's own heart? How ought we to emulate what he is talking about? And today we're going to talk about tools. Um, and and I might not look – those of you who know me, uh, this might be surprising, but I really – I do like tools. I like my, – my dad's a mechanic. I grew up around tools. He And in fact, one of the – the biggest kind of emotional things that he had to deal with as reti- as he retired was like selling his tools, right? He had all these machines for his shop and he had hand tools and he had all of these really cool things. And, and as he retired, it was like, I don't need these things anymore. They're just taking up space. I, it was a tough thing. And, and, uh, so, uh, I, I do have this affection uh, for tools and, and as human beings, we like tools. I mean, uh, like, uh, Teddy has tools for her work, but she also loves her kitchen appliances and, and is, like, very excited about when, you know, when she gets a new mixer or something like that or uh, other other things, you know. And, and one of the things that I dislike about uh, my job as pastor and kind of what I do and have done as a social worker and, and as a pastor and as a speaker is that my tools are really limited. Like, I don't have any. It's, it's like I have books, which are, which are fun. Don't get me wrong. I love I love books, but they don't really feel like tools. And then, like, I, I can, like, pens and, like, notepads. And, and like, I, when I was a social worker, I had two phones. That just felt weird. It didn't feel like I have this cool collection of tools. But we like tools. Tools are, 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 are fun. And, and one of the things that we do as human beings, uh, and it, it was very easy to happen, is that we become defined by our tools. My dad was a snap-on tools man. That was his, that was his brand you know, and, and that defined him and distinguished him from other people who had their craftsman tools or whatever other terrible tool brand that they like. And, and uh, so it's very easy for us to, you know, or, or, or people that use Apple as opposed to PC and, you know, lots of uh, arguments about such things, uh, or, you know, or, or uh, pastors get super nerdy and we start arguing about, like, which version of the Bible that we use when we preach. Like, that. that's, that's as nerdy as we get. Um, but if we, but it's very easy to become defined by our tools, and especially if we expand the definition of tools briefly uh, to include whatever we bring to the table. That that if we've got things that we've been called to do in the world, we bring not only our physical tools, our hammers and our nails, and our and our and our screwdrivers and our books and our notepads and our computers and our phones. We we bring ourselves and we bring our physical bodies. We bring our voices. We bring our our talents and and our crafts and the things that we've been built. And, and, and it's very easy for us to begin to look at those things and define ourselves by them. And this story, at its heart, I believe, the story of David and Goliath, is a story about tools. And the way that we look at tools, the way that we examine our tools, and the way that we evaluate tools. And it's a contrast of different ways of looking at tools as we face the world. So we're going to start in um, 1 Samuel 17. And the basic question... That, that this story, I believe, asks us is where and in what is your trust going to be placed? Where and in what is your trust going to be placed? And we see very early in this story that for both the Philistines and the Israelites, their trust 
was placed in tools. Now, we see this is the beginning of uh, chapter 17. Now, the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah. And, and they pitched the camp at Ephes Demin between Socha and Azekah. And, and Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up uh, their battle line to meet the Philistines. And the Philistines occupied one hill and the Israelites another with the valley between them. Okay, we've seen, we can imagine what's happening in their minds, in our minds. And a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp and his height was six cubits in a span, roughly eight feet-ish. Um, not impossible. Um, there was a long time in biblical history. So, okay, so around the 1800s, there was this thing. Sorry, I'm going to nerd out. Around the 1800s, there was this thing called um, textual criticism that came in, which is basically a bunch of dirt German dudes. No offense, Joe, but mostly they started in Germany. Uh, started to look at the Bible and say nothing is here. In here is true. How can we figure out ways to prove that nothing in here is true? One of the ways that they, that they did that was being like, no person could ever be eight feet tall. Now, problem was. The real answer to that question, they were only looking at what was in their own minds and their own experience. And what they actually knew from their own experience was that no European dudes in the 1800, no white European guys in the 1800s were eight feet tall. They were mostly five foot two or lower, like just because of diet, really. But if you go around the world, there are people who are eight feet tall. It happens. And, and lots of people who look at this story as scholars believe that uh, Goliath actually had a pituitary problem, which caused him to grow into this size. So his height was six cubits in a span. He had a bronze helmet on his head and wore a coat of scale armor of bronze weighing 5,000 shekels. And on his legs, he wore bronze greaves and a bronze javelin was slung on his back. And his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod, and its iron point weighed 600 shekels, and his shield bearer went ahead of him. This story, and what makes this strange in the rest of the Bible, is its fascination with the tools. These are better described tools than we have almost anywhere in the Bible. And this is Tom Clancy-level description uh, of these weapons. Now, if you're not familiar, Tom Clancy is a very popular novelist uh, who writes mostly like spy novels for dudes, and or ladies can like him too, but mostly dudes read them. And he'll spend like seven pages describing like the capabilities of a rifle. Now, I don't know why anyone's interested in reading that, but lots of people are. He sells lots of books. But this is that level of description. Ooh, look at how amazing these tools are. And, and these are very impressive tools. We get all of the specs, and they're impressive to the point where he has a staff member there just to handle his tools. So the Philistines are impressed. The Israelites are impressed. Everyone is impressed with the tools of Goliath. So they're so impressed that Goliath can do this. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, Why do you not come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine, and are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and let him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we shall become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill him, you will become our subjects and serve us. This is not an unusual deal in the ancient world. It was, very, it was more expedient to have champions fight than it was to have whole armies fight. That was very expensive. You normally got one shot at it. This is not unusual in the time. But nobody wants to go. And the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. And on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the other Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Everyone looks at Goliath 
and is impressed by the tools. He has amazing weapons, and he is scary, and he is big, and they are terrified. And this is when we begin to see the contrast with Saul, because already we know about Saul that Saul is head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. He's good-looking. He has a rich dad. And he also has impressive armor and an armor-bearer. So it's fascinating that in this being so impressed with the tools of Goliath and being so enamored by everything that Goliath brings to the table, the Israelites and Saul stop looking at what they have. They can only see what he's got. And they don't see like, wait a minute, Saul's real big too. Saul has a javelin. Saul has all of these things as well. It's fascinating how this works sometimes, because as much as we look at the people of Israel, and, and I certainly did as a kid and as a younger person reading this story, like how fearful and cowardly they are, looking down. It's easy for us to get into the point where it's like, wait a minute, how many times have we found ourselves not looking at what we bring to the table, but focused on all of the other things that someone else has that we don't? And that feeling of, 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 of love slash hatred slash envy slash coveting. It, that, that happens within us as we look at the tools of another person and it causes paralysis where we don't feel like we are capable of doing anything because we do not have what they have. And we see this pattern happen to the people of Israel. That they're called to fight. They're called to go up against their enemies. And they show up there and they see that... that uh, they look at the opposition, and then they get scared, and they don't fight. And then they get angry, and the whole thing happens over again. And we know, or at least I do, what that feels like. To be like, I know that I'm supposed to do something. I can't do that thing. I'm going to run away. But that thing that we need to do still stands there mocking us every single day, saying, are you going to take care of this problem? Are you going to take care of this problem? Are you going to do it? Are you going to do the thing that we've called you to do? No, I'm too I'm that's too big. I can't. And we neglect looking at what we've got, and we spend all of our time focusing on what our opposition has. And this pattern is what is played out for David as he observes this, because his dad sends him out to talk, speak to his brothers. And then early in the morning, David left the flock in the care of his shepherd, loaded up and set out as Jesse had directed. He reached the camp as the army was going out to its battle positions, shouting the war cry. And Israel and the Philistines were drawing up their lines facing each other. And David left his things with the keeper of supplies, ran to the battle lines, and asked his brothers how they were. And as he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, stepped out from his lines and shouted his usual defiance. And David heard it. And whenever the Israelites saw the man, they all fled from him in great fear. This is a comical, repeated pattern. You know, and I've never seen two armies go up against each other, but I do know what it is like to get stuck. And who of us hasn't avoided and procrastinated and, and found something that we were supposed to do and said, I'm just not going to do that because it's too impossible to do. And, and sure, I would do that if I had a big sword and a spear and was eight feet tall, but I'm just me, and me isn't big enough, me isn't smart enough, me isn't, isn't equipped enough to do what I've been called to do. I don't have the right tools. But David doesn't focus on that. So the question now becomes, what did David focus on? If the Israelites and the Philistines had found themselves in a place where what they really trusted was tools, 
that that was what and, and where their trust was. What does David look at that makes him di- different? Because we know how this story ends. We know that David is going to approach this differently. What does he look at? Um, and this isn't a rhetorical question. I genuinely want to ask you before we go any further. This is going to be fun for me. It's a little bit of a Bible study thing. What, what, does David, what is David's focused on that, that lets him change his opinion? Somebody give me something. His own tools. His own tools? Okay, that's one possible answer. What else do you have? Anybody else have something else? Jesus, yeah, sure, fine. Fine, that's, that's an answer. Every, those are the answers that all of us were going to give, I think. I could go through, if I demanded all of you give me an answer, you would have come up with something like that. It's really fascinating, because David doesn't focus on Jesus, nor does he focus on his own tools, nor does he even focus on God. What David focuses on is the reward. Now, the Israelites kept saying, do you see this man who keeps coming out? He comes out to defy Israel. The king will give great wealth to the man who kills him. He will also give him his daughter in marriage and will exempt his family from taxes in Israel. And David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? His focus is on the reward. David's focus immediately goes to like, wait a minute, no taxes? Wait a minute, ladies? Wait a minute, rewards? It's fascinating. Three times he does this. He goes around and he checks with everybody else. Like, this reward is the real thing, right? You've heard about this too. This isn't just somebody trying to send me in the wrong direction. If somebody takes care of this dude, no taxes for the rest of your life. You know, he does this three times. And I think that there's this tendency that we have as Christians to want to be more holy than the Bible. We're like, well, of course you should be focusing on God first and foremost. Rewards are something that are for other lesser people. We want to be extremely holy people and focus on God, and then maybe rewards will follow along. David's focus is completely on the reward at the beginning. He's like, I want that stuff. I want all of that. And it's okay, I think, for us to focus on the reward. What do you want? What do you want in life? It's the most important question that we can ask. If we've got an opposition and something facing us that we can't overcome, ask ourselves a question. What do we, do we even want to, do, do, do we want what is on the other side of this opposition? Do, do we want to do, what do, you, what do we want? And David wanted no taxes. David wanted a daughter. David, sorry, not a daughter. He wanted the daughter of Saul. Um, for a while, and then he didn't want her anymore. Um, uh, but he wanted, he wanted the wealth that would come along with it. And I think that there's sometimes that we need to focus our, our, our attention on the rewards that the Lord has promised, right? We know that repentance is the way to freedom. I know that if I'm stuck in a pattern of sin that I can't get out of, I know that if there's a barrier between me and someone who I've sinned against, the only way to break through that is repentance. But I don't have to love repentance, I can just love freedom and do repentance to get there. Like, we get this weird thing where I should, I should love, like, reminding myself of how terrible I am. And, and, remind, and I should love, like, this, this desperate conflict that I've got with other people. You don't have to. You can just love the rewards that the Lord gives. You can love freedom so much that you're willing to risk repentance to get there. You can love joy so much that you're willing to risk suffering to get there. You can love 
peace and harmony so much that you're willing to forgive and push aside bitterness. You don't have to love doing things. It's okay to love the rewards on the other side. If the, what we really want in this world is freedom, joy, love, peace, security, and safety, those things are available in the Lord. Those things aren't ridiculous. And it's okay to say, I want that. I want those things that, God, you have promised me to have. And David wants those things as well. His focus first is on the reward. We see this in Jesus as well. For the reward that was set before him, it says in Hebrews, he endured the cross, suffering its shame, and is seated at the right hand of God. Jesus didn't love the cross. He didn't sit there thinking like, yay, this is going to be a blast. For the reward that was set before him, for reconciliation with us, for the the saving of the entire world, he said, that's worth this. This is scary and frightening and I don't want to do it, but I'm going to push through it because I want what's on the other side. It's okay to focus on the reward. And so David does this. He focuses on the reward and he goes to Saul and says, let no one lose heart on account of this Philistine. Your servant will go and fight him. And Saul replied, you're not able to go out against the Philistine and fight him. You're only a young man and he has been a warrior since his youth. Saul falls into this pattern again. David says, okay, I'm going to face this opposition. And then somebody around him says, no, you're not. You don't have the tools. Don't you see his tools? His tools are impressive. You don't have any tools at all. You, you're, not, you're not accomplished enough. You don't have the tools that he does, so you can't do that. But what does David respond to when he hears that opposition, that he doesn't have Goliath's tools? Well, sure, he doesn't have Goliath's tools, but he has his own tools. But David said to Saul, your servant has been keeping his father's sheep. And when a lion or a bear came and carried off sheep from the flock, I went after it, struck it, and rescued the sheep from its mouth. And when it turned on me, I seized it by its hair, struck it, and killed it. Your servant has killed both the lion and the bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. He says, yeah, I don't have Goliath's tools, but I've got my tools. And I know that in the past... I've, I've put myself on a limb and I, and I was backed into a corner and I had no choice but to, but to go forward and face something that was frightening and I didn't want to do on my own and God was with me at that time. And I took what I had to that battle and God gave me a victory. And I think that, that, there's, that there's a chance that I can take what God has given me with the things that I have with me and I can use them at this task as well. I think that I've got enough resilience. I think that I've got enough backup because of what God has done that I can carry me through. This is what God has done in the past, and I trust that he will do it again. And then Saul still is focused on the tools. And Saul says, well, well, why don't you take on my tools? Why don't you take somebody else's tools and say, maybe then you can do it? Because obviously your tools aren't good enough. I'm glad that you're, you're willing to go. But you're, you need to get another person's tools. And Saul dressed David in his own tunic and put a coat of armor on him. And a bronze helmet on his head, and David fastened his sword over the tunic and tried walking around because he was not used to them. I cannot go in these because I am not used to them, so he took them off. I can't go in your tools. I don't know how to use them. I don't know. I don't... You can't do what God has called you to do with someone else's tools. You need to focus on your own. And so what does he do? He took them off, 
And he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the stream, and he put them in the pouch of his shepherd's bag, and with his sling in his hand, approached the Philistine. He gets his own tools. This is what I know how to use. And I know that it, does, it looks weird for me to be facing this giant with a massive spear with a sling in my hand, but I'm pretty sure that I can make this work. And as we studied a couple of weeks ago, David's tools weren't less dangerous than, Saul, than, than, than Goliath's. In, in their own way, David's tools were equally or more dangerous than, than Goliath's. And, and the way that people would have understood this at the beginning is that slingers like David um, had the potential to, to kill an opponent like Goliath from very far away. And, and the way that one person has described it is that um, Goliath's, once, once, saw, once David revealed himself as a slinger and chose to fight himself with a, chose to fight Goliath with a sling, that Goliath stood about as much chance against him as a bronze soldier would today against someone armed with a 45 automatic pistol. But what David brought to the table wasn't what Goliath brought to the table. It was what he brought to the table, and it was good enough. So the challenge, as I've seen uh, one person say, the great victory of David wasn't in that uh, he brought inferior tools to the table. The, the great victory of David is that he stepped onto the battlefield bringing what he had, and what he had was good enough, no matter what the enemy he was facing. But again, we see as he begins to face Goliath, that Goliath is still focused on the tools. Meanwhile, the Philistine and his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. He looked David all over and saw that he was little more than a boy, glowing with health and handsome, and he despised him. He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? Sticks. He's focused on the tools, and the Philistine cursed David by its God. Come here, and I will give your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. David said to the Philistine, and this is fascinating here, because in this moment we would expect that David would focus on his, old, his own tools. Well, you come at me with sword and spear, but I come at you with a sling, and slings are pretty impressive, so you better look out. What does he say? You come at me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, who you have defied in this day. The Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I will strike you down, and I will cut off your head. In this very day, I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves. It's not about the tools, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. His focus is not on Goliath's tools. His focus isn't even on his own tools. His focus is on the Lord who called him and equipped him and brought what he has to this to, and, and brought what he ha, the, the God who called him and equipped him and he was ultimately in charge of the opposition to which David has been called to fight. This is an echo of this story in, in a much more, a much less violent and pleasant story from the New Testament where, where Jesus talks about 5,000 people sitting on the hillside, hungry people coming and saying, Jesus says to his disciples, go get them bread. In John chapter 6, verse 9, it says, all we have is, is the, this, young, this young boy has five loaves and two fishes, but how, how is it going to feed all of these people? And then it does. Because it doesn't matter what we bring to the table. It doesn't matter about the tools. It matters about the God that we serve. And we have 
and the challenge for us is not to focus on, on, on what we have or what other people have, but, 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 to, but to understand that what God has called us to do is important and that as we go, he will equip us with what he has already given us. And, and, and the reason why I was slightly emotional as I read this is because I need to confess that as your pastor, I've probably, I've not probably, I've definitely spent entirely too much of my time focused on the tools that we do not have to do the work that God has called us. I've spent entirely too much time looking and thinking, well, those other, we don't have 700 people and we don't have a budget of 1.5 million and we don't have this, that, or the other thing. And we, and I don't have a masters of divinity yet. Maybe, I don't know. That's expensive and probably not a very good use of our money. Um, I don't have the, uh, doesn't matter, but I've spent entirely too much time focused on what we don't have rather than focused on like Rather than focused on the God who has called us and the way that he uses what we do have. Because what we do have, and this is something that I'm impressed with by you guys over and over again, is we have one of the most open group of people that I've ever met. And I feel no qualms about bringing the most broken person that I've ever met into this room and saying, these people will accept you. These people will sit with you and give you the room to do what you have to do. We have, we have some of the most, uh, we have people in this room and in this church who give of themselves again and again and again and again and again and stubbornly stick things out for decades. And I've never seen a group of people so unwilling to quit on things. And that is amazing and rare. And we are the beneficiaries of that. And we have spent entirely too much time focusing on what's not here rather than focusing on like, wait a minute, this is what we have and this is what God has called us to do. And we are going to rush out into this field trusting that the battle is not ours and it's not about our tools, but this belongs to the Lord. And we know how the rest of the story goes. We know that David fires the, the stone. It, it, it hits Goliath in the head and the rest of the story unfolds exactly as as David said it would, but there's something that I find really fascinating in the aftermath of this story because as soon as as David ex- has this victory over Goliath, the Philistines saw that their hero was dead and then they turned and ran. And then the men of Israel and Judah surged forward with a shout and pursued the Philistines to the entry of Gath and the gates of Ekron. And their dead were strewn along the Sharaim road to Gath and Ekron. And when the Philistines returned from chasing the Philistines, they plundered their camp. What's fascinating to me is not what's there, but what's not there. Because we don't see in that moment that David killed Goliath that God gives an extra portion of his power to the Israelite forces. We don't see that he gives them extra resources. We don't see that he gives them, well, here's more tools for you to go do the job with. They always had them. They always had them. And the ability for them to do what God had called them to do and rout the Philistines had always been within them. But they hadn't lived that out, they just were content to sit on their side of the hill because there was a valley between and an army on the other side and their tools look impressive and we are very scared at this moment. But as soon as they realized that, wait a minute, okay, we can just bring what we got, they experienced a huge victory. 
And how many, uh, how many other people, when you step forward into what God has called you, bringing what you have, how many other people are going to look at that and say, like, maybe I should be doing that too? It's not about an extra proportion of the power. It's already in you. God has already given it to you. God has already bestowed it on you. We just need to step into it because that's what God has called us to do and not live in fear. So the challenge for us again remains in this. It goes back to the first question we ask, what and in whom are you going to place your trust? What is your focus going to be on? Is your focus going to be on your own tools? Or is your focus going to be on the tools of other people? All the things that you don't have, all the things that you wish that you did have, all the things that you're trying to accumulate? Or is it going to be on the reward that God has promised you and the God who is in charge of everything? Are we going to step into that reality? Because it's in that reality that we find ourselves with the heart of David uh, bravely pursuing what God has called us to do. And, and again, it's not about accumulating more and better tools. It's about using what we have to do what God has called us to do. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that you are good. We thank you that you are moving. We thank you that you have given us what we need to do what you've called us to do. So we ask at this moment that you would help us to focus on the rewards that you have promised us. That you have promised us joy and peace. That you have promised us. That you have promised us uh, uh, freedom. That you have promised us that we will not lack if we trust in you and follow you. So we ask that, you, that, that we would be sustained and satisfied in what you have given us. So we ask that you would give us that today. Help us not to live in fear. Help us not to live in in, in confusion. But help us to step forward boldly, knowing that you are sovereign and in control. And that you have a plan for us to give us hope in a future. And we ask this in the name of your son, Jesus.